Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, I have a discussion with Frank Ruder, who is a lecturer at the University of Dundee in Philosophy. And so, it's a nice little brief outline first to our talk. The first part of the talk is going to be about the problems of reading marks, and then in the second half of it, about halfway through, it starts to talk about the relationship between Marx and Hegel, and exactly what did Marx see as beneficial in Hegel, and then what did Marx see as problematical in Hegel. And my initial question to Frank is that given the problems in the 20th century following communism in that post-World War II the world's more or less focused upon the war with communism with the Cold War as well as fighting various different aspects of communism in the world. Is there a point in reading Marx and is there any point of a salvation in Marx, is there anything that Marx could say that would be helpful to a contemporary situation, or should it just be abandoned completely as a topic, given the amount of harm that has been caused in the name of communism? So we start off discussing Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto, as this is going to be the next book that I will be having a look at and having a discussion about. So let's get straight into it. It's an important text. It seems um, a text to be a text that is more declaratory and less analytical. Yet it is somewhat analytical um, in a very specific way. Um, and I think it, it is really productive to go through certain claims because they um, frame certain of Marx's more complex analysis um, that he also will develop later. And then, then we get into the um, immediate question if there is, and what, and if so, what kind of internal coherence we can identify in Marx's oeuvre uh, overall, right? I mean, um, is it just one block? So you read one text, you disagree with it, you have understood Marx and, right? I mean, and, and you basically falsified him. Um, um, or is it that there are bits and pieces, right, in Marx himself, who, this is what others would say, endlessly started anew. Right? Um, there are so few thinkers where you find so many manuscripts, right? He has yeah. written so endless volumes, um, um, amounts of manuscripts from on natural sciences, from, I mean, he just wrote an entire super thick book before he started capital namely the Grundrisse, which he never, never published. And then capital was supposed to have eight volumes and only the first one appeared, right? Uh, so it was massively incomplete. Um, so in the, in the sense, um, this immediately raises a ton of questions, right? W what is the status of that theory? Is it a theory? Is it, is it an intervention already? What kind of intervention? What kind of theory? All these kinds of things. And I think the manifesto is a, is a great text to start um, tackling some of these. Also, from what perspective Marx is actually speaking, right? Is, it, is he speaking mm. from, a, from the perspective of an academic or, 
all these kinds of things. So yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also what I love about Marx, unlike unlike Hegel, is that it's completely readable. You know, <laughs> you don't you don't end up spending, which I think it was I had to prep for a tutorial once on uh talking about Hegel and art, and it was took me a good three hours just to get through the conclusion or something like that is an absolute bloody nightmare <laughs> to try to, to try to read through hegel at times whilst is just reading through marx it's just like oh thank god it's so easy and so enjoyable and about, i think that's half the problem with marx as well is the style at times sucks you in and because especially with the manifesto it's so seductive because it's so emotive and so passionate it sucks you in to say, oh, wait a minute, everything is absolutely fantastic. Your view of history is bang on. There's only two ways you can view, you know, that it's only either through the oppressed or the oppressor. This is only the way that I'm ever going to view things from now on. And it's only until like you start to come out of it a little bit and start to think a bit more critically, you, you then start to think to yourself, wait a minute what about things that you missed out what about like let's say the unemployed where do they fit in because they don't fit in within the working class as an idea and sure as how the the elderly is knowing there whatsoever what about age discrimination and all those sorts of questions as well and so suddenly you then think to yourself well wait a minute i've been sucked in completely here <laughs> no absolutely no i agree i mean this is this is why um there have been several attempts. There has been a very famous book um, um, written, written as you know, by by by, by Louis Althusser, Jean Balibar, Pierre Mastre, and others, um, Jacques Rancière, um, um, which was just called Reading Capital. And um, what they tried to come up with was a theory of how to read Marx, because Marx is very seductive. Um, Marx offers seems to offer sometimes formulas or slogans. Um, and if you take them out of context and universalize or, or, or generalize them and basically say, well, Marx said that, and this is Marx, right? They're, they're sometimes extremely contextualized and extremely specific. And you, you kind of, um, um, to speak in the early Marxian language, kind of alienate them from what they're about to say, right? If you take them out of context and you turn them into empty phrases, right? Mm. Um, this is, for example, what Lenin was obsessed with. Um, so Lenin begins state and revolution uh, by basically saying, look at all the former social democrats and conservatives. They all are Marxists right now, right? So they all, all refer to Marx. They all speak Marxist language. And then, 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 then he, as, a, as if he was an analyst of, of, of this strange type of theoretical and political and practical conversion, um, wanted to understand how people of whom he knows that they're against emancipation and so forth can endorse Marx. So what does it, what do they have to, let's say, get rid of in Marx? And what, what can they endorse in Marx? Um, so that they refer to themselves Marxists, as Marxists. Um, and, and I think that is a problem. Um, one should always remember that Marx, when asked at one point, says, uh, je ne suis pas marxiste. So I'm not a Marxist, right? Um, which, which 
again, is a sentence um, works like a slogan can be read in a, in a multiple uh, or myriad ways. Um, for example, that maybe there is no Marxism, right? Um, mm. That that it is less doctrinal than it may appear because maybe simply because it is not yet complete. Yeah, I think that interestingly enough starts to touch upon let's say we can maybe start to delve into it now because it's time to go into this whole idea of how Marx is used and why Marx is used is really an interesting question, especially just having come out of the Hannah Arendt or at least just at the conclusion and finishing it off at the moment. There's there's whole sort of lingering questions of, well, Trotsky's using Marx in a completely different way from Lenin using Marx to what um, even Stalin used, in which even the Hannah Arendt goes into, when you look at Stalin and you see everything that Stalin did, there is no Marx in there anymore. It's just simply a name because it changes on a day-to-day -day basis for how ever that Stalin wanted it to use to whatever purpose it would be. <laughs> and then you have ultimately no marks really at all. It's just a brand as marks as a brand is. So it really touches upon those key sort of problematical questions of, well, how much of marks can you get out of it? Considering the fact you are having all those problems of just using it like a brand of Coca-Cola, for instance. Yeah. I mean, so, <clears throat> so there are interesting, I think, there are already now interesting things on the table because on the one hand side, I, at least I, I, I'd say um, it is a it is a um, difficult um, position to basically defend the purity of Marx from anything that happened in his name, right? So so basically to to say that there is nothing that is no no connection whatsoever of that type of theory with the attempts to do something with it. Maybe I, I leave it as open as that in Russia, in China, um, and in many other places, Albania and, and so forth. Yet at the same time, clearly there is no one-to-one -one correspondence because in, in, in some sense, right? If you, if you look um, into Marx and good, good, good um, um, Marxist theoreticians and thinkers like Lenin were completely aware of it, does one find a normative um, concept of what a state should look like, how it is supposed to be organized, a non-state then, then as its ultimate aim, how that should look like? No, one doesn't find that, right, in Marx. So, and, and, and here immediately, let's say, problems of reading, problems of, of, of how to transpose and translate something that is inherently not yet finished and it has inherently the status of a, 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 a theory. I mean, there's this anecdote, I, I don't know if it's true, but, but, but some people refer to it, that when, when, when Marx, uh, close to um, um, the end of his life, um, heard that there was um, 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 a, a revolutionary uh, movement beginning in Russia, and um, it, it was uh, gaining some 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 force. He, uh, force. he was basically replying, "Hopefully not. Capital is not yet finished, right?" So, in some sense, that that that, that says something about the status of, of of that theory practice relationship. And the theory practice relationship is a relationship that is at the core of Marxist thought. 
right? I mean, how do the two relate? Because sometimes we think something is utterly concrete and it's utterly abstract, right? Marx would call that real abstraction, a commodity, for example. It seems to be mm -hmm. the most concrete thing, but if we consider it to be a commodity, it is not a concrete thing because we can't see commodities, we can't see things, right? So we have an extreme abstract way of dealing with it. And nevertheless, it has concrete effects on us. I buy a new shirt, I feel kind of cool, right? How the fuck yeah. does that happen, right? Through, not, not through the physical qualities of the thing alone, obviously, right? not mm -hmm. any shirt does it, but a certain shirt, right? not any kind of car, but a certain car gives me the feeling to be, I don't know, a family man or a, a rich asshole or whatever, right? <laughs> you, you yeah. um, so, and, and the things gives me, give me feeling is a very strange thing, right? How, how is it possible that things can do things to me? Because things can't do things, right? And that was a puzzle that, that Marx um, was, was starting capital in some, uh, in some sense with. And so the point I wanted to make is either you defend the purity of Marx, the theory from its practical uh, realization, right? Against its practical realization. And that is weird. Or you're basically saying, it is, it is just that, then you condemn it. You're basically saying there's a clear line from Marx to Stalin, right? For clear line from, from Marx to the Gulag, right? That is basically mm. um, And then you're, you're, you're um, condemning it in advance, or you're just condemning it because you're, 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 you're equating the theory with a certain type of historical practical realization that refers to Marx, right? So things must be somewhat more complicated, um, I think. Um, um, and, and maybe there is a third position, I'd say. Maybe there's a third position where we don't have, simply have to defend that Marx was always right and remain orthodox Marxist. It's a very different, difficult thing to do with regard to that kind of history, right? Um, so, so maybe something is, is, is either wrong or incomplete or both. Um, uh, with regard to that theory, so 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 either we do that, or 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 we 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 see how let's say the practice brings out certain shortcomings in the theory itself, which don't invalidate the theory. So that is also an option because sometimes yeah. making a mistake can make you learn. Um, right. So I mean, um, you learn to ride a bike. Uh, um through practice and you yeah. fall a couple of times right um so so in in the, it is a there's a brutal comparison but but just to make the structure clear right so so the theory mm -hmm. practice structure um so sometimes can you someone can explain to you how to ride a bike and then you then you try to realize it and you just suck right because theory doesn't help right yeah. so maybe Marx's theory doesn't help so yeah so i i think this is the complicated almost minefield one, one, one moves in uh, when one enters the, the cosmos of the, let's say, Marxist theory to Marxist historical practical realizationships um, 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 zone. Yeah, and the, the point is everybody wants to make the bike look as cool as physically possible and wants their bike to look the best. That's what half the problem is is that when everybody wants to learn how to use the bike, everybody's suddenly like, well, now I'm going to put like this cool, really flame sticker on it, put some like all the little streamer things. And that's what half the battle is as well, 
is that everybody wants their version to be the version. Um, so regardless who you look at as well, like everybody always says, my version is the supreme. So regardless if it's Trotsky or Lenin or Stalin and so forth, everybody runs around or Mao. Everybody just goes around and my version is the best. Although I did hear that didn't Mao actually not read one bit of Marx whatsoever? Is that a thing? Well, I mean, <laughs> well, he, he he was clearly aware of, let's say, the Russian canon, more or less, right? So, mm. so, and th through this, at least, I'm I'm not entirely um, certain how, I mean, um, how how deep he um, uh, uh, um, jumps and entered uh, into Marxist oeuvre, but um, I think the interesting bit um, about what you just said is um there is at least in so on, on the one hand side there's orthodox marxism or there was orthodox and there still is actually um and orthodox marxism has um different i think forms of appearance and one form of appearance of orthodox marxism is marx is always right but we don't have to read marx closely because we know marx is always right and this is why marx's slogans are enough for us because we can chant um, the slogans um, and then we know that Hegel is an idealist and just stupid right um, <laughs> and that Aristotle is better than Plato and stuff like that and if you yeah. look at let's say Russian textbooks from from the time of the Soviet Union um, you see only cliches right really only cliches not a solid just like strong um close reading um of marx not the developed scholarship of marxism in this sense right but 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 let's say um um a, a, a phrase like a phrase like use of 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 marx precisely i think as as lenin in, in 1917, so the state of revolution, already quite clearly, but in a, within the practical framework, um, uh, perceived and diagnosed. But on the other hand side, um, there are the orthodox Marxisms that started at some point that that mainly study Marx, right? That mainly study Marx, and um, they are just philologists. I mean, there is a one. There, there are people like Michael Heinrich. Um, I don't know. He just uh, published um, last year the first volume of his biography on Marx, and he is, I think, the most rigid and solid Marx reader ever. He just like begins at the beginning. He reads every every time uh, everything that Marx has ever written in school. He um, delves into the biographies of Marx's teachers and so forth. So you get the full picture. Um, and this is sometimes amazingly dry and hard work to get through. Yeah, but, but, but simply because Marxist life also and his thought is is hardly condensed to these kinds of um, um, uh, slogans, right? But both, let's say, these approaches um, um, do not necessarily. I mean, Michael Heinrich is a very advanced, I think um, um, one of my absolute favorites because he basically shows how Marx um, basically constantly sees flaws in his own approach. So Marx thinks himself is wrong and then he <laughs> changes the thing, right? So that mm -hmm. is, I think, something, something interesting vis-a-vis -vis the history of Marxism, especially vis-a-vis -vis a history that constantly believed that Marx was right, right? So you have yeah. someone who constantly thinks I need to change something because uh, my system is kind of 
problematic or that what I what I thought before I need to revise it and then you have just like all kinds of people referring to you basically saying well aren't you the messiah aren't you the political messiah you're always right <laughs> um, right yeah. so that is a what Jacques Lacan would call um, functioning communication you kind of get your get your own message back in an inverted way so you're saying I'm totally wrong and the others saying <laughs> you're totally right right so um um and um the, this alone, I think, um, shows that things are complicated. But 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 then thirdly, um, is, uh, the thing that I wanted to mention is that you also get, I think, a clear awareness that is productive and problematic at the same time um, in in someone like Lenin that Marx needs how to best put it. Marx's theory is a theory that needs to be put to use. He or yeah. needs, needs to be used. And that also means needs to be historically specified, right? Because history advances. And hence, certain of Marx's historical accounts can't be accurate anymore 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, if, if there was history in these just like calendarical years. But it, it simply can't be accurate anymore in, in, during, um, at, during such, a, such a period of time. And if that is accurate, then the only proper way to remain a Marxist, as Lenin states, again, um, second page um, of Satan Revolution, faithful to Marx, right? That was, you only remain faithful to Marx if you transform Marx, right? If you, in some sense, add something, for example, uh, Lenin added the theory of imperialism, for example, right? Um, um, and the theory of the revolutionary party and all these kinds of things, right? I mean, depending on how one reads it, but, but I think in some sense, the, the theory of, of, of the revolutionary party is, is an addition that Lenin contributes. Um, so, so, but Lenin was aware that this needs to happen, right? An actualization. But of course, this op this can open all dangerous doors, mm. because um, on the one hand side, it may appear totally sound that, let's say, the theory of a Western German who lives in London is not awfully accurate, as Marx was fully aware, for a rather rural country like China. Right. So maybe just like using Marxist theory, uh, putting it to use, uh, necessitates transforming it, um, making it ad adaptable um, um, and, and specific to the context in which it's supposed to work. On the other hand side, this is always dangerous, right? So this is a very, because you can just miserably fail and you're immediately in this kind of competition that you described. This is, um, yeah. Yeah, one thing that I think touched upon there that's really interesting is the just sheer practicality in which Marx sets out like this is not only just going to be a philosophy, this is going to be a thing that has to be practically implemented. And I think that's a really interesting point that manages to separate Marx out from the bunch, from everybody else within the history of philosophy, because if you look at pretty much most of them in a nutshell don't want to really generalize because it's a horrible thing <laughs> but if you look at pretty much everybody everybody's pretty much content within their own little spheres it's all part of like a little boys club for the large part of it as long as you just agree with whatever i say you're okay then you could join the club everybody gets a biscuit and a cup of tea comes in enjoys themselves and whatever sphere it is plato aristotle and so forth 
you're all okay but it's all fine and then they all have big spats with each other and the one club hates the other club but then then it's all it's in that all that club sense but here with Marx what's really although there's an irony because Marx is still a club as well of course um it's still that point of and um, we're going to separate ourselves out for the rest of the clubs because they're all just happy to have a nice philosophical discussion that's more or less contained within this spherical world of philosophy in itself and have us, well, if you go all the way back to Plato, have the philosophers, the par excellence people to suddenly be like, no, we need everybody else involved. We need a whole working class set of people. And this is going to be another point to, to build upon as well is how much is um, the working class treated ultimately as just trash is that the everybody else who's not philosophers or not intellectuals or not aristocratic or not nobility it goes back into those wonderful points that Marx makes within the history of looking at all what are we taught is bourgeois history is all about the elite white rich European people and therefore you miss out everything else. You miss out your regular person. You miss out the average Joe. You miss out all those hardworking people in the fields and so forth. And so I think that's one of the, the points that we can sort of build upon as well is that how fantastic it is as a philosophy, not only through its use of practicality, but also the way in which Marx takes into account everybody that's ultimately shunned aside and that's one of the points that also Hannah Arendt touches upon as well that's the point in which suddenly everybody's really interested in Marx even if you're not a Marxist because then it suddenly puts this whole set of people into history that was ultimately shunned aside of history beforehand yeah no I, I, I fundamentally agree and these two points that you just made they hang together so um the let's say practical aspect of Marxist thought is clearly linked to, let's say, that kind of agent, that potential agent to that group of people, which was previously shunned aside, excluded, systematically ignored, um, um, and um, uncounted, remained uncounted and um, un unrepresented in, in all, all, all relevant, relevant spheres of um, the, the existing system that, that Marx talks about. I think it's interesting um, um, and um, that, so, and I think this may, may lead us to the, to say something about the relationship um, between Marx, Marx and Hegel, because well, I mean, famously, Marx writes, as a very young man, um, thesis on Feuerbach, right? Um, Ludwig Feuerbach, who, who at that time, um, for I think for a whole generation of at least German, young, engaged, kind of activist or militants, militant thinkers who were very who felt very disenfranchised with the existing system which was authoritarian and problematic and produced massive inequalities and injustices and all over the place right i mean of course in germany but all over the place and and, and engels was involved because he was um he he came from a, a industrial family 
and 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 like knew the the situation in Manchester uh, Manchester factories quite well and 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 so he he knew the horrors of of, of um, the then existing factory system so so in some sense the 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 the, the disappointment with what academics or thinkers or people who are paid to say something smart about the world right i mean that, that is i think so had to say about the world was massive because the the disappointment was that they just said stuff about the world um which in one way or the other remains an abstract utopia totally detached from the world or worse justified the world right <laughs> um in one aspect or, or the other um um well workers are born i mean just think of aristotle aristotle has a has a theory um and a more more or less elaborate theory of how um, humans should realize their inner nature and 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 and, and that they do that in a social interaction with others but of course that is organized on the back of the of slaves that are just naturally born yeah, slaves, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, these kinds of assumptions, um, well, they're kind of problematic, let's say, if you're living in a slave society, right? Then you, I mean, then if you're a slave owner, you might be become an in, just like very spontaneous Aristotelian, right? <laughs> but because, well, you like Aristotle because you're all for justice and equality, well, for those who are equal and human and, and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And, and, and I think that this kind of dis disappointment um, um, leads to a problematization of philosophy, which as so often, um, I think, um, sees something very, sees indeed something very problematic in, 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 in certain, let's say, in what the what what many philosophical uh, positions have done, namely precisely what I said, just like remains um, um, strangely detached. So detached from the world by either justifying it or by proposing something that re ultimately remained meaningless to it. Right. So that 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 was a nice read and something nice to be taught, but 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 um, remains. Um, some somewhat um, a, in a status of not being a tool um, that could even help to understand the world. Right? Yeah. So, um, so and but but then um, but then Marx also frames it as a very young man in the in the Feuerbach thesis um, in the last famous thesis um, that still pins in 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 in, in uh, big letters in the entrance hall of the Humboldt University in Berlin. Um, philosophers only interpreted the world, the point is to change it, right? Um, which is very strange because um, on, on, on some level against the background of, of what we just talked about, this just makes perfect sense. But on the other, if you look at Plato, Aristotle, Hobbes, Mill, um, they all had a total idea how, how the world should look like, right? Yeah. So, so in some sense, um, so in some sense, they 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 all had a very normative idea at the same time, right? So they, uh, with the strange exception of one, um, I think, um, who this sentence is addressed to, namely Hegel, because Hegel is is the one thinker I think um, in the in the history at least of modern philosophy who in his philosophy of right does not depict a normative model of the state, but as he says in the preface, um, 
um, philosophy takes the position of the all of Minerva, right, which always comes too late, namely when a, sh a shade of life has grown old and hence is about to disappear and die. This is what he means, <laughs> right? Um, and then it can think through it because only at the end of the life, you know what the law right? I mean, so, so, yeah. you need, um, so what does that mean? Well, Hegel just shows how the state, how that exists at that time will just collapse at one point and what that will mean and how, how there is an inner rationality to this disappearance. You don't find a theory of a well-functioning state, not at all. This is why, I mean, the whole philosophy of right ends in the philosophy of history, which where, where he gets to by endorsing that there will always be war, right? <laughs> where, which, which will annihilate the state, which, which can't keep up, which is inner uh, long living and, and stuff like that. So, so there is this strange, let's say, um, strange status um, to Hegel already with this early thesis. So Marx wanted to single him out, right? He was the worst interpreter um, because he was only an interpreter, so detached from the world, right? That, he, that his theories lent themselves to justify whatever, whatever horror existed, even Prussia. Um, yet at the same time, Marx always endorsed till very, very late. I mean, when he was working on capital, he at one point writes in a letter that he 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 feels the desire um, um, because he again stumbled um, 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 through Hegel's logic and enjoyed it a lot, which is I mean, which is a rare thing to say, but but <laughs> and, and um, because it's I mean it's very enjoyable, but it's very very demanding. Um, um, so, so, so he, he writes in the letter that he feels the desire to write a treatise on Hegel's method, um, which is just um, very late in his life because um, it is so beautiful and so useful, right? Um, but it's just like, you know, so difficult to understand that he wants to make it understand to, to normal people, right? So in some sense, Hegel is the most detached, just an interpreter, right? Who has no aspiration to change the world. On the other hand side, he is the one who, and I think all what I just said um, was just a long, long elaboration of a very trivial point I wanted to make. I mean, the point, how do you bring together the practical nature and the, the, the let's say, working class, um, the, 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 the finding points in the real world where the, where the world can really be flipped around and changed? Um, well, in some sense, by having the right method. And what is the right method? Hegel's, but one has to do something with it. But Hegel's method, I think that is Marx's claim, Hegel's logic presents us with the right method, right? But famously, one has to turn from its head onto its feet, right? One has ah. to do something with it. This is Marx's famous slogan, endlessly cited, endlessly quoted, right? Turn Hegel from the head to the feet, whatever that is supposed to mean, we can talk about that. But but I think this is the idea. In early Marxist formulation, last sentence I promised, um, this will lead to the realization of philosophy. So that is the idea, the realization of philosophy, um, making the world a more <laughs> logically consistent and rational place. Oh, interesting. That's really interesting points. Maybe we could develop out the Hegel since we've started to touch upon him a little bit more than um, in the sense of 
what what is that difference between if there is because the, always you have within any textbooks you read it's always that box standard marx marx who is he he was a young hegelian what does that mean there are all a bunch of radical activists what happens later in Hegel's life? Uh, Hegel's life. Hegel's life <laughs> is that he goes more um, conservative, and then that shows his departure between Marx and Hegel is because Marx wants to go down more the radical route, and he doesn't want to be conservative. And so, what really is that? Is there a sort of early later Marx especially in his relation into Hegel because it's just so box standard but what you read just from like say textbooks and that all what Marx is is just this radical Hegelian and then that's just that's it really yeah well um so you get so Hegel when he gets to Berlin he gets to the Humboldt University becomes professor um gets a job as professor there is hugely influential. He had a lot of followers, right? Um, and there are a lot of stories how, I don't know, Schopenhauer hated him and then because he hated him so much announced a, a lecture at the same time as Hegel's and there was no one in, 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 in Schopenhauer's lecture all of it, but just like everyone was with Hegel. Like, I mean, so he was a, and he was a public figure. So that, that's, I think, important to know. Um, because he was a public figure, uh, when Edward Gans, one of Marx's teachers, Right, so we studied with him, read um, for Hegel his philosophy of rights or a version of Hegel's philosophy of rights. Right? This is what people did where you have kind of a textbook and someone else presents it. Um, um, Hegel um, was, um, let's say, summoned and um, um, uh, received a friendly but very very strict question why his philosophy allows someone to publicly say that all states will disappear in the ocean of history. This is how it what comes um, reads the ends of Hegel's philosophy right. So so Hegel Hegel basically because also I mean this strict censorship in Prussia and all these kinds of things. So a very, very problematic situation. Um, Hegel, the next year, Hegel himself started lecturing again on the philosophy of right. Um, it sounded, sounded a bit, bit, bit different immediately. Um, um, so, but, but Marx was very early on, had, had the idea, um, similar to the early Hegel actually, that only poetry can change the world, right? He wanted to become a poet. Because he thought, um, 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 well, philosophy doesn't change anything. Politics yeah. is fucked up. Right? <laughs> so what is left, right? I mean, the only thing that's kind of left is poetry. So you want to become a poet, also under the influence of 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 of, of um, um, his friend um, uh, Heinrich Heine, uh, right, who was also a politically engaged poet and uh, older friend. Now. He ditched that when he realized that something doesn't work with poetry changing the world, right? That this leads easily into a kind of dandyism or aestheticism or doesn't, doesn't, doesn't generate the, 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 the practical incentive or doesn't generate the practical, um, practical um, potentials um, that, that one needs to actually do, do, do something about the state of the world. And then, then um, he started to read, I think, quite a, quite a, what was available, averse himself, 
um, in, in the Hegelian tongue. Um, so he learned the Hegelian language. Um, um, but then he read Feuerbach, everyone read Feuerbach. Feuerbach was also a fierce critic of Hegel and sort of accused Hegel of being a theologian. I mean, that is, I'm boiling things down a lot, but, but this is my, against this theologi theological kind of aspect of, 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 of reading the world, that some kind of rational idea structures everything, which Feuerbach um, um, equated, or, or I saw Hegel equating with God, so, so God structured the world and history and everything rationally, right? Um, and you, you can take um, Hegel's, another of Hegel's famous, famous sentence and also turn it into a slogan, what is actual is rational, what is rational is actual. And you kind of, kind of, kind of also philosophy, right? And you kind of get that. And then this sounds all very justificatory and all, well, the justification comes from elsewhere, right? Philosophy has direct access, reads the mind of God, and then it basically says, no, 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 you, well, the world looks like crap to you, but it's actually quite okay because <laughs> right, we, we have a good, good standing line and so don't worry. Um, and, 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 and Marx found that, and Marx and his friends um, found that version sound of compelling. And Marx, after, after writing his... Um, switching to philosophy, also being engaged in, 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 in kind of press work, um, like print press. Um, he, he started um, writing a critique of Hegel's philosophy, right? A critique of Hegel's philosophy, right? And there he read um, the end of the philosophy, right? Because he wanted to show how Hegel is too much of an idealist. Right? That is the category that applies precisely there. So, and what is problematic with idealism? What's problematic with idealism is that it, that it, what, what, what is actually, it, it, it is guilty of a certain misrepresentation um, in the very form in which it presents stuff. What, what do I mean by that is very trivial. So Hegel, Hegel structures basically says, well, every state has um, 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 develops or has three components, family, civil society, and then the state. There are different other spheres, but I leave them um, aside for now. And Marx reads only this bit and then basically says, well, it is, it is kind of clear that any state develops from families who then form into a civil society. And from that civil society, we develop a kind of representational system, which we call the state. But Hegel says, well, that is not the case. It's not a historical development at all. But all these are the, uh, should be read from, um, from, from the perspective where the state is always logically prior. Right? So the family is always in the state. The civil society is the way the state appears to us. And then there is kind of the state in its uh, uh, appearing, appearing itself. And even worse, um, Hegel, 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 Hegel thought the state appears to us inter alia as a constitutional monarch. So Marx thought, well, that is a total inversion of what is happening. And how can Hegel do that by 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 making us believe when we read his philosophy, uh, uh, right, that there is some inner necessity that allows a family only to exist within the framework of a state. 
right? And that inner necessity has the name of the idea, similar argument than Feuerbach's, but, um, but the idea is an agent in Hegel. And the idea is an agent thereby is subjectivized, right? It, it, it acts as if it were a subject. That is the ultimate inversion. That is the ultimate inversion that ideas seem to be acting and not people. That is the critique uh, of Hegel that you even find in Habermas. Right? Um, now, yet at the same time, for a world where everything seems to be strangely inverted, where things determine us and not we are determined things, a logic of inversion, an inverted logic, might be precisely the right tool to apply, as Marx later realized. So we get from a critique of what Marx at that time perceived as a normative account of a just society of a real state, right? And why is it a critique? Because it, it flips around the empirical and the logical side, right? It presents as logical necessity what is just empirical and, and thereby it becomes a just justification and just philosophers had, had, had talk basically. But ultimately, um, um, but ultimately, uh, Marx also was aware, and this is why in, in, it is in Capital that he says that, that he used Hegel's method, but had to invert it, right? Put it from its hat onto its feet, mm -hmm. right? Um, because it must be grounded in effective, real, worldly practices. How, why, and how is that still possible with Hegel? I think in some sense, because Marx believed Hegel's theory is an inverted theory. And if we're dealing with a topsy-turvy world, right, that Marx perceived capitalism to be, this is precisely the right method and, and theory um, 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 uh, to, 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 uh, that one, that one with which one can use even the most incomprehensible effects of the current system. I hope that that, that is just like, the, I'm always talking to, I'm speaking to long, so you, Hopefully, I mean, interrupt me or get used to it. Sorry. <laughs> well, I think. Whoa! It was a. Is it possible to get a like another little simple, um, like a, just a little simplification of example of how it's inverted? Because that was a lot in one go. Yeah. No, no, no. Fair enough. So, yeah. So, so Hegel basically um, argues that if you want to come, if we want to understand what a state is. Mm -hmm. We have to speak about family at one point, families. And then we have to speak about where people earn their um, subsistence through labor, and that is civil society. And then we have to speak about political representation. Right? Now, um, Hegel argued that we can only rationally and fundamentally understand how we can, how the three are linked together if we presuppose the state, right? Three would not be linked together. So um, families, civil society, and political representation, um, and political decision-making apparatus would not be linked together at all if it were not for the state, who is kind of the entirety that frames the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, and 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 there are different media that we need to like. We need a legal system and we need a moral system. That that right. But everything is part of the state, and and therefore the state is prior to families. The state, right? The state is kind of the frame. 
Now, Marx says that sounds nice, but in empirical reality, that's simply not true. In empirical reality, we first find families that then are forming um, societies that then generate political representation. I'm, I'm simplifying a bit, but, but, yeah. but never, nevertheless. Yeah. So, so, so what, what happened here if Marx, uh, and Marx thinks he's correct. So Hegel took empirical reality and made it look different, right? He presented it to us in a way um, that we believe to have a family, a functioning family and a functioning society, we need a state. Oh, so right? he's got, he, I understand that now. And so basically the way in which Hegel's working is he's already done the end work for himself. He's already got to the conclusions and he's telling us back his conclusions without having told us all the prior work back to how it's how you get to that point in the first place. So exactly. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he's he's turning, turning, turning things around and inverting stuff, right? And then he basically says, Well, how do we develop this is now Marx speaking through me, right? So, so I'm for 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 a moment. I'm I'm uh, transubstantiation, if you allow. So Marx is basically saying the following: Hegel presents us the development from families to civil society to the form of political representation that he thinks um, 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 the state should have as a necessary form of development. That is the norm for any rational um, collective organization. But what if families are a bourgeois invention of the 18th century? Yeah, well, I was just about to say that. I was just about <laughs> <Exactly>. to... <laughs> you I see, just... yeah. yeah. So, so Marx basically says, well, he takes empirical stuff and turns it into something which seems logically necessary and eternal. And this is the inversion, right? So he takes... Yeah, yeah, um, it, it makes sense. Yeah. So this is the inversion that, 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 that Marx sees. Yet under the premise that's important that he thinks what Hegel presents is a normative theory of the state, right? Um, because if you think this is not a normative theory of the state, but thinking through a state that really existed, trying to find out how um, according to its internal rationality, its internal standards, it, it had to collapse. You have a totally different perspective, right? Yeah, it. totally. Yeah. Um, so yeah. This, is, this is the only thing I, I, I wanted to say. Um, so I, I, I defend Hegel, right? You can, I think you figured that out, right? But, but I think this is Marx's point. So Marx's point is he takes empirical shit and makes it so necessary, even though it isn't necessary, right? Yeah, well, I think that's such an interesting point, and it nicely ties into, thank you very much for all that, because that nicely ties into um, Marx's whole thing on Hegel and everything like that, so that was fantastic. Um, so... Oh, I'm left. Oh, I'm left. You've left me all filled up on, on intellectual knowledge now. It's nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes it's not a good thing, but yeah. That's okay. Um, but that's uh, it's just because it's a, such a woo, it's such a lot to take in in one go as well. And I think all those simplifications really nicely helped out. So so one of the points then um I think we can build on a little bit is that um 
so how how then would I just touched upon it just briefly a little bit, but how could a Hegelian approach help the Marxist approach? So you take the Marx and then you twist it back the other way again in to show all, because I think this would be incredibly beneficial because exactly as to a point you're just saying, like with the Marx, it shows it's absolutely you know, this is going to happen, collapse is going to happen, capitalism is going to fall in on itself, and then you're continually waiting for, but but when is that? At what point are we coming to it? Is it now? Is it now? Is it this set of conditions? And even Marx had that whole problem, just as we said earlier with that example, he himself fell into his own problem of, well, what about you know, the Russian Revolution. Oh, hold on for take. I need to write the rest of the bloody book first. <laughs> no, you, I, I think that is an excellent, uh, absolutely excellent point. Um, I mean, in, in some sense, and very trivially, trivially, one could say, when does the philosopher know or the theorist know when it's really too late or when whether shape of life has really grown old, right? And is about to die. Because some things seem to, be dying endlessly, right? So I mean, yeah, yeah. And um, and but I agree. I mean, I mean, and I, and this this obviously, um, 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 I think complicates also, um, how one is supposed to read Marx's account of capitalism, right? So you're right. I I think you're absolutely right. Um, if he is in a modified way, and we can at, at another time or whenever um, speak about what, what it means to right, turn around and more precisely. But if in some sense, Marx is using a Hegelian method, um, that is a method of logical analysis and development, right? So if you, if you, if you just look at, at, at um, the beginning of capital, for example, Marx says the first word that appears, um, 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 I think, uh, uh, so, so the first sentence of capital is um, wealth in um, societies in which um, the capitalist mode of production prevails appears in the form um, 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 of a gigantic collection of commodities with the, with the commodity as its most, I think, trivial or singular form. The, the, the end I modified a bit, but the beginning is correct. So the first word is wealth. Wealth, and then the second crucial word is appears. Right, uh, uh, wealth in these types of society appears in a specific form. And what Marx will do in the entirety of Book One is present us with an analysis of the form of appearance of wealth specific to capitalist societies. Right, and this is why he has to talk about commodities. This is why Book One begins with the category of commodities. So, so we already. And then he shows how everything follows necessarily from one another. All the concepts necessarily derive from one another. I think that shows a certain kind of, let's say, standpoint from this analysis, right? Of mm. this analysis itself. And this analysis, I think you're you're absolutely right with this, must be an analysis that, in some sense, um, assumes or takes the wager. That what we're analyzing is in decline, is about to die, is um, is um, about to disappear and vanish. 
um, at least logically, I'd say, right? Yeah, yeah. Logically, it's inconsistent. Maybe it takes another 5,000 years, but logically, it's un 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 unsustainable, right? Um, because, well, uh, empirical life sometimes takes a bit longer, right? Um, but, 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 but that means um, when, when uh, Georg Lukács, um, the German-Hungarian Marxist, um, um, said that Marx is... Um, uh, um, uh, as Lenin always thinking from the standpoint of the proletariat, right? One could say that that this that 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 he already inscribes this kind of perspective about which we talked about earlier, right? That links the theory to a, 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 a nodal point in the real world into his logical analysis of super complex and abstract things in capital. So, so he takes a Hegelian position, that is what I'm trying to say, right? assuming that, that the philosopher can only describe and think through when it's about to disappear. And what is this position? It's the position of the proletariat, right? which is kind of the very position um, we can talk about when we talk about the manifesto, what, what the hell that means, the proletariat, um, but, but which is kind of um, subjectivizing the position. So it's no longer simply the position of the philosopher. Right? So, so, so it's the position of those who will realize this collapse. Right? Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Um, um, I think so. <laughs> a okay. little bit more, a little bit more of a simplification would be. So it's, no, 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 it does make sense in the sense. It's just always you need their second for their brain to catch up with the rest <laughs> of you. <laughs> sure. No problem at all. No, no, I get it in the sense of, um, no, it totally makes sense in the sense of exactly those points that it, it's going to collapse. But of course, it's that logic. And that's what Hegel's going to provide in a much more concrete way that's going to be helpful for an overall Marxist approach to flip it back onto the overall scheme of how and sort of when and all that sort of stuff, it, uh, even if is those points, you know, it has to have that point back into help itself from being rather than just grandiose claims about the future and being prophetic about how things work to get more backgrounded and ironically, this is coming from Hegel, who's an idealist, you could argue, that it's, <laughs> here's a man who's arguing for something to be come back and to be much more grounded. Exactly, exactly. And uh, I think the, 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 the shift is a minimal shift of perspective that Marx perceives, namely, he thinks the position from which the logical Hegelian analysis of what is about to decay and vanish is no longer the position of the philosopher, but the position of the proletariat. Ah, there right. we go. Yeah, I think that is that is a crucial, and th this is what I meant earlier with 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 emphasizing the realization of philosophy. Right. So he he thinks when sh that when we shift that, the type of subject changes. Right. So and and then even though the logical and 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 from that position, head to feet. Right. Mm -hmm. um, this is what what we what we what we accomplish here. Um, the logical analysis gets more, let's say, practical, you practically usable because we know it will collapse, right? I mean, so in some sense, this is this is the instrumental, almost practically instrumental value of the theory itself for the subject from whose standpoint it it provides that very analysis. So I hope you enjoyed that. 
discussion between Frank and myself all about Marx. And we've got some points here that I feel that would be great to sort of sum up what was said. So first things first is that Marx's theory is practical and not limited to its specific historical constraints. It should be transformed to fit different situations. Failure is a positive thing as we can learn from it, but it can also lead down dangerous paths as people can make incredibly harmful and dangerous mistakes. Marx was drawn to Hegel by the idea of a rational idea that structures the world. Marx's argument against Hegel is that Hegel presents ideas to us as necessary, but they are not. Ideas are affected by empirical conditions. It is not the position of the philosopher to invoke change, but the proletariat. And Hegel's philosophy helps to structure Marx's philosophy through the idea that Marx's philosophy will collapse. It stops Marx from being held up as an idol and stops the theory aspect of being viewed as prophetic. So feel free to drop me an email at my address at dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com. Check out the Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash dissectingphilosophy. There is currently the ongoing discussion of Slavoj Zizek's Pandemic 2, Chronicles of a Lost Time, that deals with our contemporary situation of the coronavirus pandemic. Tip me a coffee at coffee.com forward slash dissecting philosophy, ko-fi.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. Feel free to check out the website at www.dissectingphilosophy.com and there we can check out my blog post for little bits and bobs that I put on there. And lastly, I can be found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time.